podcast is part of the 80s Ruled Network. Visit the 80s Ruled on Facebook for more 1980s awesomeness. 1980s Movie Montages. Just make sure you never say, I love kids. Never say that phrase on the show. All right. Hey, welcome back to another episode of 1980s Now, a weekly examination of the importance of 1980s pop culture and its influence today. My name's Will and joining me as always, as if it's been several minutes already, maybe even an hour. Who knows? They're my friends. They're my co-hosts. The time flies. It's Ray and Kat. Hey, guys. Hi, guys. Hey. Again. Uh, what's going on? Our bonds are stronger than internet connections. Well said. Well said. Hey, on today's show, we're going to be talking about some of the greatest movie montages from 1980s films. And there's a whole lot to pick from. So odds are we might necessarily, might not necessarily pick yours. There's plenty of places you can complain. You know, like the (laughs) Facebook page. Mostly that's a good spot. Or go to our website, 1980snow.com. There's a little form you can fill out. You could also send us nice things too. That'd be great. Hey, speaking of that... (laughs) Thank you for your cooperation. We did receive a couple of nice notes since the last time we spoke, including one from Brian with a Y. When did that start, Brian with a Y? I mean, my friend, you know, Brian with a Y, he's around our age, so I wonder if that's a generational thing. Mm. Uh, This Brian, however, writes, keep it up in the most optimistic and positive way ever. Wait, wait, I got to say it the way he's, I got to, he says, quotes, keep it up, end quote. The other part Mm -hmm. I added myself because he's a positive guy. Yeah, but I'm not thinking that uh, you're right there. I think it's oh, yeah. a thinly veiled threat. Keep it up. Oh, like. Keep it up, punk, and I'm going to find out where you guys live. <laughs> Keep it up. Oh, God, I don't know what to do now. And I'm especially confused because the message we got after that was from somebody named Kim. And Kim writes, she just wrote, quote, love, end quote. Keep up the love. Oh, okay. Or their internet cut out before she could uh, <laughs> type the rest of it that said, love to tell you I love the show, but sorry. <laughs> I'm with Brian. We're going to find you <laughs> if you keep it up. Oh, boy. Okay, that was... <laughs> Thank you for your cooperation. For that cooperation. Thank you for it. Hey, we also wanted to give a shout out this week to our good buddy, Jeffrey Owens. If you remember, Jeffrey was on the show last year. And of course, we first fell in love with Jeffrey when he played his character, Elvin, on the hit show, The Cosby Show in the 1980s. Mr. Owens is a very accomplished actor, a very accomplished Shakespearean actor. He teaches Shakespearean, uh, teaches teaches Shakespeare rather. And he is performing right now at a theater in Memphis called called Hadaloo. I guess, Hadaloo Theater. You can find out more information at H-A-T-T-I-L-O-O.org. He's performing there through September 5th. It's a, he's performing a, he sort of made a, let's say what the kids would say, a mashup, right? A mashup of different Shakespearean monologues. He's sort of woven them together and does a complete sort of one-man Shakespearean show. I wish I could see that. Yeah, me too. He is a really mm-hmm. fantastic actor. Okay. Hey, anything else anybody else wants to say? I have something that I'd like to say. Okay. Uh, if you remember, we had a little dispute on our last episode about what constitutes mm. a slow dance song. Ah, okay. Mm-hmm. We were talking now, about uh, what Sweet Child of Mine, whether that was a ballad or not. I don't hope to settle that dispute tonight, but I would like okay. to report that I remember the Guns N' Roses song. Oh, that your crush was dancing to? Well, or? I kind of ran over and flung my arms around his neck. So uh, <laughs> he had no choice in the matter. So he had to be dancing so slowly you could at least do that. 
Because if he was doing that fast serpentine, he would have just thrown you off. <laughs> well, remember, there's a slow serpentine too. Oh, there, oh, yeah. Okay, there's there two go. versions. So he's doing the slow one, so he was. It was easy for you to get your arms around his head or his neck. He, mm -hmm. he might have stopped moving at that moment while we all waited to see what song oh, was next. Okay. So, what song was next? Not like what's happening. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so do you want to hear the song? Well, is it a Guns N' Roses song? It is. Oh, mm -hmm. is it slower than Sweet Child of Mine? It is. Well, then that would be patience. Yes. Oh! Yes, yes, yes. Thank you, Ray. Very good, of course. Okay, so tonight while I was making dinner, I played both songs. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And Sweet Child of Mine did not mm. inspire me to want to slow dance with anybody. Now, I could see. Oh, God. Okay. Mm -hmm. I could see mm -hmm. how you might end up doing some sort of couple's dance maybe yeah. maybe an, an expert has already chimed in and clarified exactly what i said on mm -hmm. the internet so that expert lucy webb on facebook yes i i have this vision now of cat like in her living room earlier today and she's got the songs on and she's playing it and she's <laughs> like you know hearing it out and making a motion with her arms and her husband's like, what are you doing? And she's like, honey, I'm trying to figure out if this song makes me want right. to throw my arms around a strange man. Right now get over here and start doing the serpentine dance so I can see if I can get my arms around you. But be sexier like my high school crush. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Hey, let's get caught up on 1980s news. Hey, I hope you're ready for a whole lot of John Carpenter, because we've got a bunch of John Carpenter news for you this week, including the fact that in the July issue of Total Film, Carpenter has reflected on the possibility of Snake Plissken returning to the screen. Of course, Snake Plissken is the character portrayed by Kurt Russell in Escape from New York, and he later returned in Escape from L.A., which I don't really remember, so it's probably not a terribly great film. It does have Bruce Campbell as the plastic surgeon, so you should remember that. I do remember the horrifying image now. You say that, yes, of Bruce Campbell, <laughs> right? Yes, right, that's correct. But that's it. I don't remember the story. Was it basically the same story? You had to save the president or somebody from someplace? He was in L.A. and he didn't like it there, so he played a <laughs> basketball game to get out. <laughs> Are you describing the plot of Space Jam? No. <laughs> Pretty sure you are. Uh, Carpenter was asked if Snake holds a special place in his heart. And he said, he's a character that Kurt is passionately fond of. He convinced me to do the sequel. There you go. That's why. That's what happened there. Mm -hmm. um, he went on to say, there's probably a third or maybe even a fourth story about Snake. I don't know if we'll ever make it, but I think he deserves it. Does Snake deserve another story? Yes, but not with Kurt Russell. Okay. Now, I know his son doesn't want to do it. Right, right, right. But I thought of two guys that are perfect for this role. Okay. Danny McBride. Oh, okay. <laughs> escape, escape from Mexico. Right. <laughs> Wait, I, th I saw that season of East Bound and Down. That's what you're describing. Danny McBride escaping Mexico. With an eye patch. Oh, oh, with an eye patch. Okay, yeah, there you yeah. go. Yeah. And the uh -huh. second version, or the which would be the fourth movie. Bruce Campbell playing both him and the mm -hmm. doctor. No. <laughs> oh. Mark Wahlberg. Oh, Mark Wahlberg. Escape oh. from Boston. Oh. Oh, wait. <laughs> he can't. He can't. It's not possible. He can't get out. And that that would be the end of the... The four movie series. Yeah, I don't know. It sounds like you got, you're describing a little bit uh, tonally different escape movies than I thought. But hey, like I said, I don't remember Escape from LA and I, uh, so I'm open to it. I feel a little bit less precious about Escape from New York than I do other 80s films. Should I watch those two? Yes. Oh, okay then. You, you know who Ernest Borgnine is, don't you? Yeah. He's a pretty famous actor, right? Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. He's an Escape from New York. All right. 
I could That's make kind it of worth crazy, it. isn't it? He, he wound up being in a lot of movies you would never have expected he'd be in. <laughs> He's also in that other movie that we were just yeah the uh, Super Fuzz, Super Fuzz, uh, Super Fuzz. Yeah, oh, I love that movie so good. It was so good. Uh, regarding, however, uh, Carpenter, also in this interview, he points out that uh, in the Thing, which he also made with Kurt Russell, of course, he, the that the studio had a problem with the ending of the film. He said, "quote We actually came up with the final lines up there on location." Universal, once they saw it, uh, said, can't you be triumphant here? I had a lot of pressure to change it, end quote. But the movie is good because of the ending. If they rode off into the sunset or someone came and saved them, I don't know, it'd be a different movie. I don't think it would have ruined the movie, but I think that version they went with was better than the Hollywood happy ending. Yeah. You know, kind of reminds me of, I think the first, because, you know, you're talking about Hollywood endings, like this idea that every, everything's good at the end, you know, it's just sort of a storybook thing. I remember as a kid seeing uh, uh, Night of the Living Dead, you know, the original George Romero film in black and white. Mm -hmm. That does not have a Hollywood ending. And as a kid, it was shocking because I think it was the first time that, you know, you expected everybody's going to be okay. Hey, the guy made it. The guy we were rooting for made it. He's he's fine. He's going to be fine. And then he gets killed by the (laughs) quote unquote good guys. Yikes. (laughs) Yeah, I agree. That movie wouldn't be as strong and neither would the thing. All right, cool. Hey, Mm -hmm. talking about, uh, speaking of John Carpenter, uh, this is not part of the article in uh, t- Total Film, but we have learned that we may be destined for even bigger trouble in Little China, or Littler China, China and Bigger Smaller, <laughs> or Trouble China Trouble, my Right. Okay. <laughs> Bigger's Troubles. Yeah. So, so, hey, you love The Rock. I love The Rock. Everybody loves The Rock, but you know, Dwayne Johnson's a busy dude. He's often mm-hmm. got several projects in the works, and many of them are produced by his own uh, film company called Seven Bucks Productions. But it's Hiram Garcia, the president of that organization, that does much of the heavy lifting, pun intended. Uh, In a recent interview, Garcia updated Collider about many of the company's upcoming projects, including Big Trouble in Little China, which has been in the works for a whole lot of years. We've been hearing about it, and then we heard it just a few years ago that it seemed like The Rock was going to step into the lead role. Regarding, however, whether the film is a reboot, Garcia said, quote, we have a really fun idea on what we'd want to do with it especially since our goal was never to remake Big Trouble, but simply continue it, mm-hmm. end quote. Reboot, remake, bad. Okay. Sequel, good. So I like the idea it's a sequel, but they got to go get professional writers because his team stinks at writing a movie like this. <laughs> oh, I'm trying to think of an example. I mean, well, Jumanji is one of their films. Jumanji, the Jumanji films is seven bucks. I like those movies. They were fun. Mm-hmm. Can you imagine this being like Jumanji or Mysterious Island yeah. or- it's a little too silly. Those are a little too silly. I don't know. Silly. They're Disney watered down kind of things. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And this needs to be like the original. So, you know what? He, they got the, the clout now. Just go get some real writers. Yeah. It, it's not that hard. And then I'd be okay with it since I do like The Rock. And if they if Danny McBride's unavailable, then The Rock will yeah. do. <laughs> <laughs> Danny McBride could write it, though. He's writing those Ooh. Halloween films. He's doing a good job. Yeah. You know what? Absolutely. Oh my gosh, yes. And he wrote that, what's that movie, Your Highness? That was pretty good. that's awesome. There's been some trouble getting it done. However, Garcia does point out that there's complications that come with a legacy property like Big Trouble, but says, quote, needless to say, we are still working on making it happen, but as with any great project, the road is not easy, but we're sticking to it, end quote. So, I don't know. I'm curious to see it. I'd be excited. I really love the first one. To your point, too, I remember feeling a little scared watching that film. You know, Lopan was kind of scary. The storms were kind of scary. Not in a horror movie sense, but not in a Jumanji sense. They were darker and scary than Jumanji. <laughs> what? Ray's nah. chuckling. Nah, no, it's not scary. scary. It. Right. It's, it's all about the pork chop 
Pork Chop Express and Kurt Russell. That's what that movie all is. What about Can't the work? monster on the back of the truck at the end? I'm just saying, that home, he carries that movie very well. Yeah, he does. He's great. What is a Pork Chop Express? <laughs> <laughs> Have you not seen Big Trouble in Little China? You know how I am with many movies. I haven't seen them. <laughs> Put it on a list. <laughs> all right. All right. All right. That, actually, you can see that one without a doubt. That's a great movie. You got to see okay. that movie. Yeah, absolutely. It's a very 80s film and it's very John mm-hmm. Carpenter. And as awesome. we all know, Kurt Russell is easy on the eyes. Kurt Russell. Kurt Russell Prime. <laughs> prime yeah. pork chop right there. Right. <laughs> what? <He's>, okay. <laughs> in other 1980s news, once again, it's time to play. You've got to be kidding. All right, now we talk about a 1980s uh, project that's upcoming that has to do with the treasured property from the 1980s and what Hollywood or some machine is trying to, you know, squeeze out, ring out the last few cents. Nostalgia goes in and coins fall out the other end. We have just learned that Karate Kid is headed to stage as a musical. Mm -hmm. Uh, It will (laughs) kick up its world premiere in St. Louis next spring and what producers are calling a pre-Broadway engagement. So many folks probably know a lot of these shows that you see ultimately on Broadway and touring throughout the country start off on another stage somewhere. It could be in London, but oftentimes it's in the Midwest somewhere, Chicago often, where they workshop these things until they get all the kinks out and figure out, you know, can they get enough money to actually put it on Broadway if it's worthy? And Karate Kid seems to be following that path. Now, the good news is that the book is being written by original screenwriter Robert Mark Kamen. Mm-hmm. The music and lyrics are be- being written by Drew uh, Gasparini, who did work on Smash. And it's going to have a limited engagement beginning on May 25th, 2022. And will run through June 26th. And probably from there, they'll see if they think it could make a bigger run on, you know, on stage. I'm curious. Curious is how mm-hmm. I feel about this. So part of me wishes I could see it just to say, to see how... How are they going to do this? <laughs> yeah. I didn't know any of these people's names that they, in the article that I read, assumed I did. Like they were important people that they were talking about for stage mm-hmm. and whatnot. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I just got to the point where I started daydreaming that they let me write the songs for this thing. Mm. What do you got? <laughs> All I got is titles. Oh, let's hear them. Get them a body bag, sweep the leg, <laughs> uh, yes. golf and stuff. Uh-huh. Mm. stuff. I, you know the last <laughs> song after he wins the fight is I'm the best around. <laughs> Daniel, you're the best around. Just all different variations. And they, everybody like just keeps saying it over and over again. Yeah. Because it's just easier for that than to actually write something. We get it. <laughs> now, what I did learn though reading about this story is that what I hadn't known was, and this is based on a quote in this article I read about the, the musical coming up, from Cayman himself. He wrote, he, he said, quote, when I was a young man, my life was forever changed by traditional Okinawan karate and the instructors who taught me. The karate kid is my love letter to both those masters and their practice, end quote. What? I did not. How did I get this far in life without realizing that Karate Kid was semi-autobiographical? Did you know that? I did not know that, um, but I really don't care because it's a good story. <laughs> no, actually, that's, it's actually really cool. Uh, it sucks he got beat up a lot if that's the part that's true. Right. And he took karate. Yeah. But once again, though, we talked to other people yep. uh, many episodes ago. Mm-hmm. And they said the same thing when when the 80s hit and that movie came out, everybody who yep. got bullied oh, yeah. ran out and wanted to learn karate. And oh, every yeah. bully ran out to learn karate to make sure that the <laughs> nerds couldn't still defend right. themselves. So it was right. a booming business back then. Yeah. Boom. <laughs> and then they learned we're from the same masters, so we can't fight. 
Ah. Right. Yeah, oh, man, if I'd have been around the 80s, I'd have opened the, the, the Cobra Kai dojo in the neighborhood. Yep. Oh, yeah. I've been training no. all the bullies. You mm-hmm. would have opened Eagle Fang. Yeah, whatever. <laughs> Cobra Fang, whatever. Pick one. Robert Mark Kamen's story is, uh, it says it's based on his life. I did some digging and found that when he was 17, he was beaten up by a gang of bullies after the 1964 New York World's Fair. He thus began to study martial arts in order to defend himself. Unhappy with his first, first teacher who taught martial arts as a tool for violence and revenge. That sounds familiar. Yeah. He moved on to study Okinawan Goju Ryu under a teacher who did not speak English, but himself was a student of Chojin Miyagi. Wow. We talked about him a long time ago on some news story where we were talking about a guy who analyzed the show, Cobra Kai, and and the films and was pointing out how it does seem like the moves are really based on Miyagi, the real Miyagi, because it really was a Miyagi. Mm -hmm. And I can't remember. Some other, some other school. Yeah, it's starting to come back to me now. Yeah. <laughs> Not a lot of it, but it's coming back. I thought it was interesting that uh, Gasparini, who's writing the music uh, and lyrics, said that, um, quote, as I am sure anyone my age can relate to, the Karate Kid has been a major touchstone in my life, end quote. All right, I had to look up how old he was, how old he is. He was born in 1986. Come on, dude. Wow. Dude, your age. <laughs> Wait, whoa, 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 whoa. He should be singing songs about Transformers, the, is, the Fallen, or whatever, is, Dark is, Side of the Moon, or whatever that. Is this the guy who's writing the screenplay or, or the musical? He's writing the music and lyrics. So he just said that this is a touch, uh, uh, touch myself moment in my life. Yeah. And he was even born when the movie came out? Yes, you're right. Wait, yes. Get him out of here. I guess he saw it on video. I don't know. Get somebody else in there. All right. Okay. Hey, that was 1980s news. The interwebs are f- tonight. All right, check it out. All right, so check it out. Hey, if you like this show, and how could you not like this show, right? Mm-hmm. It's taken us literally two hours to bring you the last 15 minutes. You'll never know that. <laughs> Just trust me, okay? So do us a favor. Find a way to support the show. Help us continue to grow. Many ways to do that. Share a post or visit us at patreon.com slash 1980s now and find out other ways that you can help out. Okay. Hey, on today's show, like we mentioned, we're going to be talking about the greatest montages from 1980s films. There's a whole lot of them to choose from. And we picked out, you may hear 10 of them. You may hear less. (laughs) Now, so I did some digging in connection with this because I am curious, like, what is the history of a montage, right? Like, how did we even get here? Mm-hmm. And it's kind of interesting, I think, and it'll make more sense later on, I think. But the, the modern montage in film today actually is sort of seems to be an evolution of what is known as the Soviet montage theory of editing. So back in the early 20th century, uh, there was this gentleman named uh, Lev Kuleshov, who's regarded as one of the earliest film theorists, set out to determine the essence of cinema. So just like any Russian, he wanted to boil it down to something they could recreate mm-hmm. and mass produce. <laughs> you know, make money off the backs of others. So in 1916, he and several colleagues made a study of audience reactions at movie theaters across Moscow. And they, they, they noticed that audiences reacted differently based on, you know, the origin of the film, what country in which the country in which the film was produced. And he wrote in his, his essay, The Principles of Montage, that they noticed that American, European, and Russian films were different in their construction. They noted that in a particular sequence of a Russian film, there were about 10 to 15, what he referred to as splices. So we think it's like, you know, cuts. Uh, in European films, there were maybe 20 to 30 such splices. And uh, in American films, there could be any from any amount from 80 to 100. Now, this is back in 1916. I, I saw this interview with uh, Al, uh, Alfred Hitchcock earlier today when he was talking about 
he was talking about this essentially. And he was talking about how in psycho in 45 seconds, when, uh, uh, who is it? Uh, Janet Lee is, is murdered. He believes there's something like 78 cuts. So, wow. <laughs> you know, so a good 50 years later, it's, it's different. But the point being that there was a lot more cuts in American films at this time. They analyzed it and the American films took first place in lis- in eliciting the most emotional reactions from the audience. So he really wanted to figure out why this was. And ultimately he was, he concluded that the essence of a film is the mon, what he referred to as the montage in that how it this sounds obvious to us now, but the idea that a film story is told by cutting between, you know, or cutting between two different or different moments in the film. Right. Mm-hmm. Now his, he had a student cause he briefly was in charge of this film school in, uh, in, in uh, Russia, Sergei Eisenstein, who, who saw the montage as putting sort of opposing images together and that contrast would give, uh, you know, would elicit a reaction or he referred to it as the intellectual montage because it actually could persuade you to, you know, believe <laughs> something, right? And ultimately, Eisenstein wrote and directed a film in 1926, you may have heard of, Battleship Potemkin, which was a Russian propaganda film that dramatized a moment in the Russian Revolution, but he did it also to test out this theory. If he could elicit, you know, change how people felt by editing sequences in a certain way. And sure enough, uh, you know, by the end of the film, you're rooting for uh, the, the, these sailors who rebel against their, their overlords, you know, it's essentially the Russian government. Mm-hmm. Of the film, Nazi propagandist Joseph Goebbels said, quote, anyone who had no firm political conviction could become a Bolshevik after seeing a, seeing that film. <laughs> anyway, so getting to now our stuff here, early montages then, as it started becoming known in the, in the West, sort of this, con, you know, concentrating on the idea that how the sequence of different images could elicit reactions or, you know, help with the storytelling. Early examples were used to show, uh, you know, transport us from one location to another. So you think about the beginning of Indiana Jones, for example, mm-hmm. you know, where we see the map and the plane going over the, superimposed over the map. And now we're, you know, in Sri Lanka. Mm-hmm. That was done, you know, back in the 30s and 50s with other films already, including Casablanca has a iconic uh, scene like that at the beginning. Alfred Hitchcock, as I mentioned, was fascinated with the Soviet montage theory and adapted it in such a way that he used it to progress story. Psycho is a good example. There's a montage at the beginning that gets us to the house. You know, Janet Lee's on her way to the house and already in just a couple of minutes, we have all these different images through the day and night as she's traveling that, you know, sort of set the tone for the film to come. Mm-hmm. 70s, you've got The Godfather. You've got uh, Corleone at a baptism while other folks are being murdered at his uh, command, establishing him as the Godfather in a series of just different images. And then another groundbreaking one in 1976, worlds introduced to one of the most renowned montages of all time, the training sequence in the first Rocky film. Sylvester Stallone, who wrote and starred in the film, it was directed by John Avildsen, who also directed The Karate Kid. you know, use this to move, move time along, right? So show the progression of starting out one way and ending another. And that takes us into the 80s because that's most how we see the montages today. We're going to get back to this idea of the Soviet uh, intellectual, uh, what's it called? Intellectual montage later on. Mm-hmm. But uh, I think it's interesting how we'll see things come full circle. Okay. Hey, so let's talk about our list here. 
Mm-hmm. The first uh, montage that I wanted to present to you guys is, re- is the one from Revenge of the Nerds. The film, of course, came out in 1984, directed by Jeff Canoe, starring Rab- Robert Car- Carradine, Anthony Edwards, a whole host of bunch of folks who we would later see in other films. Best friends, Lewis and Gilbert, move into Adam's Academy, only to find out that they have to now live in temporary housing, which I think is like the gymnasium, <laughs> because the Alpha Betas fraternity have burned down their, their uh, frat house. And so the they get to go to the the dorm that these uh, freshmen would otherwise live in. As a result, they got to find a new place to stay. Lewis, good news. He finds a home. Bad news. It's a total fixer upper. I mean, the thing is a dump. <laughs> it's at this moment when they decide, you know, he actually introduces the house and tells, assures them that they can fix this up, that uh, we hear this. Bone Symphony, which is a short, uh, short-lived uh, new wave group um, with only one record, uh, Bone Symphony. Uh, we hear the song "One Foot in Front of the Other" as the nerds rally together to fix up the house. You've got Timothy Busfield. Can you believe this is Timothy Bus? Timothy Busfield. It's still mind-bending, right? That he's mm. Poindexter. <laughs> he's sweeping alongside an increasingly threatening robot. Uh, instead of uh, working uh, on anything, Booger's just getting Takashi high. Uh, and the others are cleaning and painting and dusting around the house. Of course, by the end of the song, the house finally has curb appeal. Um, we see uh, Stan Gable pull up on his motorcycle and his girlfriend, Betty, who's on the back of the motorcycle, points out how great the house is. And, and Stan remarks, not for long. <laughs> they totally suck at fixing the house up. But when they're done, it's awesome. Yes. Mm-hmm. It's insane. So, yes. and I thought for a long time that this was a David Bowie song. Oh, I could see that. That, that. He does have that sort of. He's got that Bowie sound to his voice. Right. I thought it was neat about this, this band, Bone Symphony, is that every member of the band had a synthesizer. There's no, there's no natural instruments. They're all keyboardists playing. Okay. <laughs> hey, Ray. Back to school, 1986. Yep. Sixth highest grossing film of that year. Starring Rodney Dangerfield as Mr. Mellon Thornton. Mm. His uh, son, Jason, is played by Keith Gordon. You also got Burt Young, who we all know from Rocky. Yeah. Plays Lou. Zapka's in it as the bad guy. Ned Beatty plays uh, Dean David Martin. So his name is Dean Martin. Right. <laughs> uh, and you also have Sam Kinison, Robert Downey Jr. A lot of stars in it. Um, the plot is, is his son's having trouble at college. So he decides, I'll go back to college to help him out. But he just buys his way in instead of getting in the right way. Right. So eventually they call him out on it and they say, you're going to have to take an oral exam from all your teachers on the same day. So this is where our montage starts when he decides he's got to buckle down his study. So we start off with him sitting in the dark on the steps of the library. They open it up and then he's there when it closes. They shut all the lights off on him. He uses his lighter to keep reading. <laughs> you know, then we get, uh, there's a scene where he's in the shower and he's drinking coffee and he's wobbling all over the place. And Jason, yep. his son is there in a, in a raincoat holding the book for him. <laughs> you got the massage table where his son's holding the book above him while Lou's massaging him. And then when he flips over, Robert right. Downey uh-huh. Jr. is under the table holding the same, you know, the same book so he can finish reading it. And then you get to the final part. This is the best part of the montage is he's yep. in the morning. He's all tired. He's making coffee. So he's got the grounds. He's got the little pot of water. He pours the water into the cup. He puts the sugar on his hand. (laughs) And then he takes the cup of grounds, pours it directly into his mouth, sucks up the sugar, and then pours the hot water (laughs) in his mouth. And then is instantly (laughs) wide awake for the test. He's his own coffee maker. (laughs) (laughs) Right. 
And you got that, uh, you know, great tune by uh, Danny Elfman playing. Mm-hmm. It seems not very Danny Elfman like at first. And then uh, just a few bars in, it gets some more Elfman esque. <laughs> yes. Uh, yeah. As, as you know, as a youth, having seen this film, I was most impressed, of course, that they had Oinkle Boingle in the film. You know, because, <laughs> not of course knowing that Danny Elfman also right. composed the soundtrack. Yeah, he was already there, so I'm assuming. <laughs> yeah, he was there. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> yeah. Top Gun, 1986, American action drama film directed by Tony Scott, produced by Don Simpson and Jerry Bruckheimer. Um. Do I need to describe the movie like you guys did? I mean, I sort of figure most people have seen this. No. Everybody knows. Yeah, everybody, Gun, yeah, everybody right? knows Top Gun. Yes, the volleyball scene. So, um, what was that? Pork train, pork chop, train. <laughs> pork chop, pork express. chop express. <laughs> is that what this whole scene is? Pork chop express coming through. <laughs> toot, toot. Yes, indeed. So, Tony Scott, the uh, Director, apparently in an interview featured in the film's 30th anniversary DVD, he said, I didn't have a vision of what I was doing other than <laughs> just doing soft porn. Ah, <laughs> uh, yes. That, that's what I was trying to remember that couple of weeks ago. <laughs> right. Yep. So he, he apparently knew that um, almost anyone could be titillated by the sight of these oh shirtless, oiled up actors. So he... That, that's just what it was about. <laughs> you know, I wonder in that line about soft porn, mm-hmm. is that applied to the whole film? I mean, so many folks, you know, including Quentin Tarantino, have talked about how homoerotic the entire mm-hmm. film is. Mm-hmm. And he, he, in the argument he makes and the examples he gives, you're like, yeah, I can't deny that. But even the beginning of that volleyball montage, mm-hmm. I notice, uh, who is Iceman's uh, partner? I can't remember. <laughs> oh, Slider. 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 Please. Slider's got that model ship, and he's like, pew, crash and burn, Maverick. And when he holds it, he's holding it in front of his crotch, like oh, basically above his crotch. And he goes like this. He lifts it up like this. And then Tom Cruise brings his face right down to his face, right above this thing. Oh, my God. <laughs> I was like, this is definitely softcore porn. <laughs> yeah. I'm turned on. Absolutely disagree. <laughs> Oh. And I'm going to oh. tell you why the volleyball scene is not gay. Okay. Because to tie this into the rest of the movie, uh-huh. during the volleyball scene, Tom Cruise looks at his watch multiple times to make sure he's <laughs> not late for his date with the hot chick. Mm. This is just boys having fun. So there's no plot line. Yeah, like there's there's no story happening except that, hey, we're just playing volleyball and we're oiled up. And That's actually how the, one of the things the director said, can you just look at your watch? Like, you know, the right, date thing. Right, Like it's, <laughs> it's actually something they were like conscious of. Well, like hmm. we really got to tie this into the movie somehow. That's the only link to the story. You make a good point because both of you, because <laughs> so far the two montages we talked about, you started at point A and you wound up at point B. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You know, there was growth in there. There's no growth. We got a little bit of an understanding of the relationships right, and how right, yeah. the, the the rivalry between the, 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 the two mm-hmm. you know pilots, sets of pilots. Mm-hmm. But other than that, hey, yeah. Who hasn't been at work? And a volleyball yep. game broke out all oiled yep. up in the backyard at work. Right. Come on. <laughs> well, it makes more sense if you say it started while they were at work because I noticed Tom Cruise is the only one wearing jeans. Yes, jeans. Everyone else yes. has got like sweatpants or shorts on. He's wearing full on, you know, Levi's. <laughs> well, they, they do have their dog tags. Come on. I was wondering if he wanted to be yep. at least half ready for his date, you know, so he didn't have <laughs> oh, to change his pants or. Yes, you know, yeah. you're right. <laughs> She's oh, like, yeah. what is all this sand? <laughs> yeah. What the hell? <laughs> Dude. 
<laughs> There's got to be some in his pockets. <laughs> Another funny thing about this is yep. um, all the scenes with the aerial stunts, that was all very difficult yep. to film. But for this, they just brought yep. in a dump truck, <laughs> dumped some sand, <laughs> set up a net. <laughs> and a few barrels of, uh, what's that stuff, Ray? You said um, cocoa uh, butter. Cocoa butter. Yeah, yeah, there you go. Yeah, the guy who played Slider, who's not good looking anymore. Oh, but, come on. Uh, a lot of those, he, uh, well, no, this is his words, not mine. Okay. Um, yeah. He said um, a lot of that stuff was improvised that he did, like the the big posing scenes. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. And he's like, I may not look good now, but I forever have that. Yes, he did say that. <laughs> they all did look really good at volleyball. Like, I was yeah. like, damn. But. There were some, yep. there were stunt, stunt men. Oh, there were some doubles in there? Yes, they had stunt oh. men doing the, the spikes and the dives and uh, mm. yeah. <laughs> Who would have thought you needed a stunt double to dive in the sand? And this is before Tom Cruise was trying to kill himself in a movie. Tom Cruise would be on that now. Oh yeah. <laughs> dive off of a building into the sand. <laughs> Spike the ball or whatever. All right. Hey, next up, Dirty Dancing, a 1987 film uh, written by Eleanor Bergstein and directed by Emil Ardolino. Of course, it starred Patrick Swayze and Jennifer Grey. Um, everybody knows the story. In short, you know, baby goes to summer camp with their parents and her older sister, and she winds up, uh, although she's mostly bored, she winds up getting interested in Johnny and uh, the group that he hangs out with, um, in part because she observes him dancing at some point, and she is not a good dancer. So um, they spend the summer learning how to dance, or he spends the summer teaching her had a dance to appear in the talent show by the end of the film. Mm-hmm. A low-budget movie, it was originally going to be just a one-week release, uh, and then it was going to go straight to video, but it wound up being a surprise hit in the theaters. It went on to become the first film to sell one million copies on video. Wow. The uh, particular montage that we're talking about is the one that is set to Hungry Eyes. The uh, three-and-a-half-minute <laughs> montage shows baby's growth. You know, again, this mm-hmm. is a good example of the use of a montage, it seems. You see her go from a novice dancer mm-hmm. to one that's moderately skilled. They've got some more work to do. They've got to get in the lake and <laughs> lift one another up or something <laughs> like that. But we also see a little a glimmer of their growing attraction, mostly from baby's perspective, because throughout the entire montage, Johnny seems really frustrated with her because, you know, she's just not getting it. And she's ticklish. Yeah. Yes. And it turns out that, you know, you've heard, probably heard some stories about them questioning whether or not they actually got along Right. I, yeah. uh, during the filming of this. They actually had appeared in Red Dawn before this film together. Mm-hmm. Um, but in Patrick Swayze's book and also in some commentary from the director since, they pointed out that the tension really was the result of the fact that Swayze was really a trained dancer. Mm-hmm. Sure. He, you know, did sports in school, but he got injured and then moved on to studying martial arts. And eventually he'd rip a man's throat out, you know. Like, like nothing to mm-hmm. him, but he was, uh, he spent a lot of time training as a dancer and early in his career, that's a lot of the jobs he took were involved dancing. Mm-hmm. Um, he actually did get an injury that pre- prevented him from doing, uh, taking some of those other jobs that involved some physical activity like that. But this one he took on because he felt compelled as a, a actor who was considered a dancer turned actor. He felt he had to, you know, do this role. But there was tension because Swayze really was teaching Gray how to dance. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So he and his his uh, biography, you know, referred to the fact that, yeah, no, it, it was really me teaching her. And the fact that there was friction as a result of this. Mm-hmm. And the moments you see in that montage of him being frustrated, some of them are just straight up, that's what was really happening, <laughs> including the one Kat alludes to where, she can't keep from laughing mm-hmm. uh, 
when they're supposed to, you know, hit sort of strike this pose at the end of this uh, turn, mm-hmm. she keeps cracking up and he keeps looking away like he's frustrated. And it was real. Yes. Uh, the director <laughs> gave them, you know, had them keep doing it over and over again. And by the end, he decided it was just, you know, it was going to make its way into the film, which it did. <laughs> to his credit, Patrick Swayze in the book also, though, it says that uh, the film, Jennifer Grace performance probably made the film. Hmm. That would have been me, <laughs> the ticklish yeah. one. He would have been really annoyed with oh. me. <laughs> You know, I, I did, I did so many moments where he's like being rough, like, no, put your hand this way, do this, come on, stop. And I'm like, this is great acting. <laughs> and then you read this stuff and you're like, oh my God, he was abusing her. Right, right. A poor woman. He's just, he's just a regular old dance teacher. That's all he is. <laughs> yeah. I think by all accounts, he was a pretty sweet dude. And um, yeah, yeah. watching these clips again, I thought, I miss Patrick Swayze. He was in a lot of good films. Oh yeah. Mm-hmm. Talented guy. Mm-hmm. Okay. Oh, we want to do a secret of my success, 1987. Sure. Uh, <laughs> Katrina and the waves walking on the sunshine. Great song. It's used in other songs or other movies, but yep. uh, this one's pretty good because uh, Michael J. Fox is playing this character, Brantley. Of course. Who uh, ends up losing, moves to New York. The job's not there anymore because the company's already been bought out. So he keeps applying for jobs and ends up in a mailroom. Eventually, he finds an empty office, figures out a way to create an executive that doesn't exist, and takes over the <laughs> office and begins to work. <laughs> so the montage bow, bow. starts with him... Um, enjoying his new life. <laughs> so now he's saying good morning to everybody. Mm. Now he's hitting on the secretaries and yep. the other executives. Mm-hmm. Whereas before when he was in the mailroom, he wasn't supposed to talk to anybody. <laughs> and, uh, and in the beginning of this though, before the music starts, he's in his underwear, his new secretary walks in. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and he says, uh, it's just really hot in my office. but it's not anymore so now i'm gonna get dressed yeah (laughs) it's a lot of fun i think the music really carries this one Mm because it's such a good song and he's so good at being happy so it just plays really well the film was actually inspired by steven spielberg when he was young and um he was at universal studios and he found an empty office and just started using it (laughs) and so that's part of the inspiration for this movie oh my gosh yeah, I thought uh, the the Katrina cool. song sounds a little sped up when you compare it, when you hear it next to the one that aired on the radio. Mm-hmm. It seems well, a little there's a reason for that because um, the song that they used in the movie never appeared on the soundtrack either. Mm. Hmm. I don't think it's I, I'm not sure, but I don't think it's the original version. Ah, that that makes sense because it does sound does sound a little faster, and her the voice sounds a little different too. Mm-hmm. I, I thought the one you know look now I'm looking for meaning in these montages. These <laughs> Russians have incepted me <laughs> with their theories. But I thought the uh, the moment when he's on the, trying to run on the treadmill yeah. was a good sort of metaphor for the whole film. Because yes. first he steps on among all these other successful guys he's thrown off and he's mm-hmm. off screen you can't even see him but he comes running back on mm-hmm. and slowly he gains his footing and then he's running along you know keep being, mm-hmm. being able to keep up that is a nice oh. metaphor speaking of films 1980s films that became musicals secret of my success was made into a musical that was very, very popular mm-hmm. okay cat bill and ted's excellent adventure yeah 1989 american science fiction comedy directed by steven herrick written by uh, Chris Matheson and Ed Solomon. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And so uh, I'm not going to describe the movie because hopefully everybody oh, knows. Everybody knows. <laughs> if you're not, turn this show off. What are you listening exactly. to? Exactly. <laughs> so this montage is about the hijinks at the mall. And the song right. is Play With Me by Extreme. Extreme. <laughs> 
basically, we see Billy the Kid, Sigmund Freud, Abraham Lincoln, Socrates or Socrates, <laughs> Genghis <Right. laughs> Khan, Joan of Arc, Beethoven, all wreaking havoc in a varying degrees, some more than others. Mm -hmm. Well, Bill and Ted are going to uh, Waterloo in <laughs> Napoleon, yes. right? Yeah, they're going to. Right. Yeah, and um, yeah, and it's it's very funny. It's a, a lot of wacky things happen. I like how they tied, you know, for most of them, except for Socrates and Billy the Kid, mm -hmm. they tied uh, something about them from their own era to today. You know, so you yes. had Genghis Khan at the sporting yes. store with trying out new weapons and yes. Joan of Arc teaching aerobics, yes. which she'll then use to train her troops. Yeah, Beethoven took over um, the yeah, an instrument yeah. display and, and had a All these different keyboards. Big audience. I thought that was pretty clever. <laughs> well, of course, Abraham Lincoln's just getting his photo taken at some, uh, you know, one of those. And they try to take his hat. I'm Abraham Lincoln. <laughs> That's how it all starts, right? Just, <laughs> yes. Yep. I really like this uh, extreme piece to this mm -hmm. music. Mm -hmm. uh, the clip they use of that song is not till like halfway through the song. Right, right. It's sort of the, you know, the bridge of it mm -hmm. almost, but mm -hmm. it's really quite yeah. adept at playing uh, those uh yeah yeah that's yes. a that's a great band and so, uh alex wender would go on to direct their next video uh decadence mm -hmm. dance shortly after this movie came out mm -hmm. uh mm -hmm. which he began to do a lot of right also mm -hmm. uh another weird fact metro center mall in phoenix arizona where was this was filmed mm -hmm. just closed last year oh. during the pandemic wow also another thing i like about this i just want to bring up uh the chick that yeah. plays missy Amy Stosh. Mm -hmm. She also, she's one of the rare women in uh, the Bill and Ted series who actually has reprised her role in every movie. But more importantly, she's born in Cleveland. <laughs> uh, see, I'm just pausing. I'm like, what? let's just see where this is going. <laughs> yeah, it's unfortunate Diane Franklin wasn't brought up back. <laughs> yeah, that's kind of ridiculous. But what are you going to do? Mm -hmm. It's more unfortunate she's not from Cleveland, but whatever. <laughs> Hey, next up, The Karate Kid from 1984. Mm -hmm. Everybody knows The Karate Kid. Of course, we talked about it earlier. It was written by Robert Mark Kamen, and we learned it's based on his an actual life uh, events that happened to him. It was directed by John Avildsen, as we talked about, starring Ralph Macchio, the then known as Billy Zapka, who now is William Sir William Zapka, <laughs> uh, Pat Morita, and Martin Cove. This particular montage we're talking about, because there's a few in the film, and including the one at the end that has the uh, Joe Esposito, You're the Best Around song. I love that song. I love that montage. But I think, for me, that montage is maybe not as good as this one because it's a lot of the same things over and over again. We're getting through some time rapidly, but it's mm -hmm. just one fight scene after another. Yeah. It's advancing it. Yeah. But I like this one, which is when uh, Daniel is at uh, golf and stuff mm -hmm. with uh, Allie. It starts off with Lucille, Daniel's mother, driving them there to golf and stuff, but not before her car, her station wagon, breaks down in front of Allie's uh, parents' home. <laughs> I could so relate to this. Oh, my God. I feel like this, so much about this movie, me seeing it, you know, and being from New Jersey, and I think he's supposedly from Newark in the movie, right? Yes, now. he is. And uh, he is. being from Jersey City, which, mm -hmm. you know, New is Newark mm -hmm. is the largest city, and the Jersey City is the second largest city. Mm -hmm. Anyway, so much, including that moment where he, she's like, the mother, it's no big deal. Let's get out and push the car. And she says to the mom and dad, it's fine. It's really fine. And Daniel's like, oh my God, this is terrible. <laughs> when they get the car to start rolling, of course, the, when the car kicks in the gear, so does the song Feel the Night by Baxter Robbins. We were strangers in the naked sunlight Where everything is far too real From your eyes that Of course, the montage is them doing different things on a date. So, of course, it culminates with them taking a photo in a booth together and ultimately holding hands as they, they leave. Mm -hmm. 
this is a song that uh, we hear now in Cobra Kai a couple of times because this moment has been recreated recreated at least twice. Mm-hmm. And then we first saw this similar first date between uh, Sam and uh, Miguel mm-hmm. in season one. And I believe we hear the same song, Feel the Night. And then later in season two, no, not season two, season three. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Season three, when Allie returns, Johnny and Allie recreate this moment at golf and stuff. And mm-hmm. again, we hear the Baxter Robinson song playing. So many great, uh, you know, homages in, in the Cobra Kai series that are just, you'd say they were fan service, but they also just are like a shortcut mm-hmm. to us emotionally because mm-hmm. we connect these moments to the earlier film, you know? Yes. And if you're, if you're interested, golf and stuff is an actual real place. Oh yeah, still open. Located at ten five 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 Firestone Boulevard. All right, Ray Footloose. Oh, Footloose. Nineteen eighty four movie about a poor boy from Chicago thrust into South rural, <laughs> you know, country folk town. For some reason, he likes to dance, and he finds out they can't dance there. So, um, for some reason, because Ray can't, you can't relate to a man who wants to dance. No, no, I'm just saying it's just, oh. you know, the, the whole movie revolves around the fact that they can't dance. Right. And he's just irate. Mm-hmm. Of all the, the things, he's interested the only in. thing he's yeah. mad about in this whole dang town is that they can't dance. Yeah. Right. So, I'd be pretty pissed off too. <laughs> um, but at the one point, we get a great moment where they play Let's Hear It for the Boy by Denise Williams where he teaches Willard how to dance mm. because he wants to learn because his girlfriend wants to dance with him and stuff. And mm. um, it's, it's really cool. He's in his bedroom with the headphones on, kicking the headboard. And um, but when you first starts out, you see the Volkswagen and the two of them are in the car snapping their fingers. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but from this moment forward, a key element to every scene is the boom box that they have with them. Mm. So it really ties the music to the scenes. Hmm. Like even when they're on the, the basketball court and he's slow, you know, trying to teach him, the boom box right. is still there. Mm-hmm. When, uh, when they're in the bleachers yeah. and they do the back shot of the legs, the boom box is there. Mm-hmm. It's, um, I love the way they tied that into it. Like, yeah, you got to have music to dance. And I didn't notice that. That's cool. I thought it was also cool that Chris Penn, who plays Willard, actually could not dance. Mm. So everything he learned how to do for the dance scenes at the oh. end, he learned during this movie. Oh, Whoa. it's not like Dirty Dancing and Patrick Swayze and Jennifer Grey. Yeah. Except Kevin Bacon's not an <laughs> well, and Kevin Bacon really couldn't dance either. Oh, oh, what? yeah. Well, yeah, okay, yes. So they were kind of just winging yes. it. Like mm. he, he's also not a gymnast, in case you were wondering. Yes. <laughs> okay. Well, yeah. That one. I think we knew. I remember reading <laughs> yeah. there were five doubles he needed to do that barn. Yes, scene. the barn scene has, or yeah, the warehouse scene has five doubles. Where's but the, uh, yeah. this one is is all him. And as it progresses, it's really cool because you do see him get better at dancing. Yes. Mm-hmm. So it's mm-hmm. actually, I mean, he's really playing it up in the beginning, obviously, where he's trying to snap and can't. and We can't even. Yeah. And he can't. Eat. And he's got the headphones on. He's falling at school and he's like really over exaggerating all the movements. <laughs> yeah. It culminates yeah. in he's do this, you know, the dance and stuff. And and then uh, Rent gives him the, the okie dokie sign and he keeps going, come on, get me better. And he starts clapping. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, <laughs> I like this one a lot. I think this mm-hmm. is probably top five all time. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, the song was nominated for Best Original Song at the Academy Awards. My baby, he don't talk sweet. He ain't got much to say. But it also loves me. Yes. You know, you say he was a little over the top at the snap. He, he's sort of acting as if he's offbeat. 
This reminds me, this moment reminds me of a real life incident event in my life when I was a kid and I was in elementary school and uh, I don't know what my friend wants to be saying in my name. My friend Dominic, <laughs> don't say it real My friend Dominic, uh, <laughs> hey Dom, when I met him, I've told this story so many times, he tells it too. When I met him, it was under these circumstances and Dominic, uh, you know, he was, uh, I, I certainly, I thought this way, many people regard him as a tough guy in the school. You know, he's the kind of guy to be feared in the school. Mm-hmm. And, um, I, uh, we had it. We weren't friends. I think he got left back once, or and so we wound up being in the same grade. And it was at that point mm. he said to me, "I have a deal for you. I'm going to make you a deal." Uh, and the deal I was like, "I don't need a deal. I'm good." <laughs> no, no, you taking the deal. What? And the deal is, you teach me how to dance, and I will teach you how to fight. Wow. And I said, "I don't know. I'm good." And he said, "Well, okay." I can give you your first fighting lesson right now. I was like, all right, I'll teach you how to dance. I'll teach you how to dance. So we did this thing where I would, you know, teach him how to dance and he would teach me, you know, self-defense or, you know, martial arts. And he was as bad as Willard. I don't think he minds me saying that. It was like that. Really? Uh, uh. Wow. That's That's crazy. And it would be... (laughs) You know how he was trying to have him feel it like in the car and he was like, all right, like Mm -hmm. feel the... Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we would do those things. So all you did, so all you did to teach him to dance mm. was steal from Footloose. <laughs> yeah, he doesn't know that yet. Oh, now uh, he knows. Now he knows. But he, well, <laughs> hey, but in my defense, all he did is teach me the crane kick. So you know, it was, it was a wash. Nice. Uh, I will also say this is based on a true story. Elmore mm. High School in Elmore City, Oklahoma, due to a law made in the 1800s, their oh, high school Lord. could not have a dance. It was like 79 or mm. something. 70 late into the 1970s. And that's what this movie is based on. Wow. I would not be surprised if in the country there's some area that still has a law like this. There's got to be. There's so many laws on books that are, you know, they wind up just staying because nobody challenged them or tried to take them off. Or forgot, yeah, forgot they were there. Yeah, they forgot it. Yeah, it's not that they're not dancing. It's just- Could you imagine you're having a high school dance and and somebody at the police station is like, I hear music and they just (laughs) bust in and start arresting everyone at the high school and no one knows why. Yeah. I just have one question though, Will. Yeah. Did your friend Dominic make you paint his house? What's in cars? <laughs> he was just getting me to do chores, it turns yeah. out. No, no. Okay. He did get me to do a lot of things, but no, not, not all to discuss on this show. It's kind of like Ray with his stuff. Yeah. <laughs> oh no. Okay. Let's move on to Ghostbusters. <laughs> Nineteen eighty four, of course, uh, Ghostbusters came out, and um, the song for this montage is the theme song "Ghostbusters" yeah. by Ray. Parker easy enough, Jr. right? Yep, that's super easy. Mm-hmm. Directed and produced by Ivan Reitman, of course. Written by Dan Aykroyd and Harold Ramis. So, <laughs> this is when the boys start their rise to fame. Some notable things for me about this montage: number one yep. is their credibility is being established. Mm-hmm. And they are being live reported on by Larry King and Casey Kasem. We hear those voices. Mm -hmm. Roger Grimsby, some other guy. I didn't know who he was, but (laughs) he was on the street. Yeah, I was wondering if that was a real guy or not. Yeah, And and they also appear on the covers of USA Today, New York Post, Time Magazine, Omni, The Atlantic, The Globe. So I really like how we just see more and more that uh, they're being taken seriously and they're becoming Mm -hmm. more and more important. Uh, In Mm -hmm. the middle... (laughs) <laughs> there is a, a certain scene we see oh. an intimate ghostly encounter <laughs> I don't remember that oh really yeah. oh, what, how, yeah. can you describe it to us intimate ghostly that's my encounter. description an intimate mm. ghostly encounter between Ray Stance and a very human looking female ghost 
Now, this is a dream sequence as we see it. Yes. Ray's having a dream, of course. But interestingly, according to SlashFilm.com, what we are seeing is um, actually taken from a scene that was planned and was shot, but deleted or not included in the final film. Oh, okay. And it was um, supposed to be Ray um, yes. <laughs> at a place called Fort um, Detmering, something like that. Mm. Okay, so he stumbles across some uh, fancy old uh, uniforms. He tries on this uniform and he's posing in a mirror and then he he's tired, I guess. He lays down on this big old fancy bed and he falls asleep. And then supernatural things start happening. A sword oh. moves and there's glowing light coming from the uniform. A uniforms. sword moves. <laughs> oh. oh, a sword does move. Oh my God. Cat's so poetic. Oh my God. That, that's fancy talk. A sword is unsheathed. Do, do you write romance novels in your spare time? <laughs> I always fall into these traps. Or I, I set words. them for myself. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> okay. So mm. his meter's going off. No, oh, no. PK. <laughs> <laughs> Wait, what? His PK. What, what are those called? You know, his what? His PK. <laughs> Uh, oh my god i can't talk anymore okay <laughs> wait is that the scene that was deleted you're this, yes i'm describing montage, the deleted right? scene oh, okay. right okay so okay. so he's falling asleep but the, oh but we still see the pke meter though? no he actually falls asleep yeah and the peak yeah. so he doesn't realize that i these see so it's letting the audience know yes. there's a ghost around so okay. the audience is seeing the store <laughs> yes. the uniform and the, and the meter and um and then he he wakes up because he realizes something's happening to him mm. and it is actually a ghost who's come to visit him <laughs> and, <laughs> and and then apparently out in the hallway like or uh winston is walking by and, and you're okay in there ray and he says oh yeah i'm fine or whatever he says need a minute <laughs> but the, the the scene as it was um it, it it didn't fit. They just couldn't make it work um, at the spot there. Where <laughs> you they mentioned Dan Aykroyd's like, I need to be by right. a ghost. We got to make this fit. <laughs> I love the fact exactly. that this is one of the most beloved family movies of all time. Oh, man. Right. Rated PG and nobody even cares that this scene is a part of this movie. They're just like, yeah, hey, you know, my kids don't know what the hell's going on. It's fine. Oh, no, I care. And it's the reason why mm. I kept putting off, like showing our kids mm. And then it just got to a point where they ended up seeing it when they were old mm. enough oh. at somebody's mm. house at a party. <laughs> so I cared. I did not care. I remember watching it with my kids too when they were young and thinking, oh, what man. are you going to ask about this? Like, uh, and I got to be ready with something. I mean, like, oh, they're just ghost just playing a joke. It's yeah, funny. Stealing his, stealing his belt. <laughs> yeah, they didn't care. They thought it was funny. Yeah, going to make his pants fall right. down when he gets up. It's going to be hilarious. Yeah, I thought of that. I did notice. <laughs> that makes more sense, Kat, because I did notice mm -hmm. for the first time watching this today, mm -hmm. he's wearing like a matador jacket or yes, something. Yes, and he has the, the like. you know, the things on his shoulders with, with the frills. The, the epaulets. Little, yeah, or, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's yeah. so funny. We know, you know, Ray, uh, I'm sorry, Dan Aykroyd. You know, he, he is really into the paranormal. Mm -hmm. He has been. He's inherited it from his, you know, his grandfather and father. Like they were just, you know, generations of folks into the paranormal. He believes in these mm -hmm. things. That he would write a script because he wrote mm -hmm. it, him and Harold Ramis, <laughs> where he has sex with a ghost. This has got to be his ultimate fantasy. And he wanted someone to film it. Yes. It's on his bucket list. I guarantee it. <laughs> <laughs> it's not cheating, honey. It's not cheating. It's otherworldly.
I also love that uh, Larry King, when mm-hmm. they when his part comes up, he mm-hmm. actually predicts yep. like the second half of the movie. Oh, where he sa- where he says the part about where a lot of people think they're heroes, but other people think they're phonies. That's right. right. And then mm-hmm. you kind of that's mm-hmm. when it, and that they're causing the trouble. Right. Right. So yeah. I thought that was kind of cool because at the time he was he, yeah. even then he was really famous. So mm-hmm. when they cut back from the the dream, the supposed dream, mm-hmm. that scene that you described, mm-hmm. to the to the guys supposedly in their beds. Yes. It doesn't look like the actors to me necessarily. Mm-hmm. It looks like it could almost be doubles. <laughs> but even aside, that aside, even if it is them, Egon's is like kicking his legs slowly straight into the air. <laughs> yes, he is. <laughs> it looks like Venkman is the farthest bed away so. and he kind of looks up at what's going on and just goes back to sleep <laughs> and then Ray falls out of the bed. Yes. It's just like, almost seemed like B-roll. Like they were just like, do whatever you want. We're going to stick it in somewhere. Or maybe we won't. And Dan Aykroyd's like, oh, sure, you're going to put that in. But me, right. I want to do something with a ghost. Dude. All right, let's 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 wrap this up with Rocky Four training scene. This is a seven-minute montage that covers two songs. Uh, we start with the main Rocky theme, and we get into Hearts of Fire by John Cafferty. The movie, $28 million budget, made $300 million at the box office. Remember, that don't count the videos, because we all bought this thing, too. So, yeah. uh, Special Stallone, Dolph, you know, Carl, uh, Bridget Nielsen... Uh, again, Burt Young, he's in everything. Who, who would have thought yeah. that? A lot of films. <laughs> um, but uh, this one's filmed in Wyoming, doubling as the Soviet Union when they shoot uh, the montage, which is basically, oh my God, Dolph just killed uh, Apollo. So now I got to go to Russia and I got to teach this guy a lesson. So how am I going to train? Well, obviously, if I'm Rocky, mm-hmm. I'm going to go out in the wilderness and run in boots down the road with Russians chasing me <laughs> while Dolph is in this, you know, laboratory on special mm-hmm. equipment, you know, Rocky's out there chopping down trees so he can carry them on his back and yes. run uphill both ways. And Dolph's, you know, Dolph's got a, um, a treadmill that goes, you know, gets steady, goes up. Mm-hmm. And meanwhile, Rocky's running up a mountain. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. and you know, as the montage, there's so many things in this montage. It's incredible. It's just impossible to name them all. I mean, he's lifting wagons, rocks, Dolph's getting plenty of steroids during this thing, just to make sure you understand that he's a machine and there's computers everywhere. But, um, he gets to the mm-hmm. top of the mountain, but before he gets there, Dolph on his treadmill stops running. So mm-hmm. it's a clear indication that Rocky's training is better. Mm-hmm. And he's also outrun the Russians in their car now. <laughs> right. So now yep. he's on top of the mountain and he's yelling something about Drago. Mm-hmm. Right. That was very dramatic. I think my favorite part is when he's carrying that tree in knee deep snow on his back. Yeah. <laughs> and he's just like, I'm like, dude, do you know, even for him. And I mean, he was in great shape yeah. during the film. <laughs> that's got to suck. <laughs> like that's a one take scene. I would love, I got to look that up sometime, yeah. but there is no way I would do that twice for, for a scene. Like, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. We didn't get a good angle on that. Rocky. <laughs> hey, I, we need you to pick mm-hmm. the tree back up again and tromp through the snow, and I'd be like, "No, yeah, it's good. whatever yeah. you got, that's what you get." I think, I think even more than his struggles with the log is Sylvester Stallone's struggle with that clearly fake beard he has on, <laughs> because it looks like at any moment he's, it's going to slide off of his face. Right? You know I mean? what's funny? You don't notice that to the second half of the montage when he's in the barn oh. doing the the the, ch- 
The yeah, that's when I was noticing yeah. it. You're yeah, right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's weird. It's like they were like, because um, I think that could have been, there's a part in this movie where Dolph hits him so hard, he ends up in the hospital for five days. Mm, so maybe they shaved him. He hit him so hard that his heart uh, enlarged. And they had to take him to the hospital because mm. in a lot of the training stuff, they were actually hitting each other because he's like, no, I want this to look real. So they filmed right. it that way. So Carl Weathers also was getting the crap beat out of him and quit the movie for four days. Just kill my character. I'm out. <laughs> oh, no. He was like, I am not getting in the ring with this animal again. Like, oh. I don't know what you told him, but I ain't doing it. So actually, eventually Dolph had to apologize and back off a little bit just to get Carl Weathers back in the movie. Oh my gosh. And this is after he'd already put Sylvester in the hospital and they're still like, come on, oh, come on back, yeah. man. It's fine. <laughs> you know, you're thinking also about that, the ending running up that hill. It's clearly, you know, <laughs> an homage or throwback to the original film when he does that thing in, in, you know, on the training yes. when he runs up, up the steps in yep. Philly where his statue mm-hmm. is. You know. mm-hmm. But yeah, this is iconic. It's America versus Russia. It's the, the, the underdog who, all, everybody he passes in the Russia um, love him and wave at him. And here's Drago and this just clean environment running on a track. And, you know, mm-hmm. and there's, I always forgot to mention, yeah. Talia comes into the, the one scene and just giving them googly eyes. Like when he's got yeah. the beard and it's like, mm-hmm. right. I didn't even, I forgot she was even in that part of the movie. <laughs> he was doing that ab yeah. thing where his legs go straight in the air. Yeah. She was like, she was like a uh, cat when you do the serpentine <laughs> right. dance. She was like going to run over there and throw her arms over his neck like the song started playing. <laughs> how, slow, how slow is this song? Can I catch him? Can we slow so, down the tempo a little? <laughs> you, you know, so it turns out that the uh, film Rocky Four is 91 minutes and 20 seconds long. If you total up all the montages in the film, <laughs> the montages are 29 minutes and 10 seconds. Wow. That means the percentage of Rocky Four that is montage is almost 32%. If you take even a closer look at it, at it, most of the montages come towards the the end of the film. So the last fifty minutes of the movie, there's actually twenty four minutes and twenty seconds of montage, <laughs> which means the second half of the movie is like fifty percent montage. <laughs> Sylvester Stallone is a genius writer. He had twenty minutes of movie, stuck montage in there. And just made it awesome. Well, and, and you said, see the genius of Stallone. So I've been listening to this and Ray, you might want to check this out. There's this cool podcast called Wind of Change. And it talks about or questions. And I haven't gone through the whole thing, but I think I know where, how it's going to end. Whether or not the 1990 Scorpion song Wind of Change was written by the CIA as a psyop mm. against Russia and to bring down the Berlin Wall. It seems like it probably was. Mm. Um, but thinking of that and talking about, you know, I didn't waste your time earlier talking about montages in the Soviet th- theory for no reason, because it seems like if we could see Battleship Potemkin, which we talked about earlier, that film that was clearly Russian propaganda and that was successful experimenting with this intellectual montage, that this film, which is, you know, 32% montage, is somewhat American propaganda. And in this, mo- this I'm sorry, the film, in this montage in particular, it sort of sums up the whole thing, like you pointed out, right? The, the bad Russians with all their technology and they're doing drugs. Right, right. Rocky's yeah. natural and organic. At some point, Drago can't even keep up and Rocky continues to persevere. And the message of the film being like the American way ultimately will survive and will be better and will surpass the Russians. And as we talked about, you know, several episodes ago with um, Professor Kevin about the Cold War, 
you know, hey, he said, he said, you know, he sort of, you know, poo pooed this theory, I think, but <laughs> it does seem like this, like that Scorpion song could play, could have played some role in changing the hearts and minds of the Russians and other folks who are on the other side of the Cold War. Mm-hmm. All I know is that I pretty much remember walking out of the theater on this one and everybody chanting USA. Right. Uh-huh. It was, I, I pretty sure that actually happened. <laughs> yeah. Montages today, you know, sort of kind of a punchline, yeah. you know, are often used sort of as a yeah. goof, but in the 1980s, they reigned supreme and were used often to advance story and sometimes advance political agendas and topple an entire government. Hey, we couldn't do this show without folks like you, including and especially our Patreon supporters, John Henderson. I always say it that way, right? It seemed that way. Uh, Craig Coletta and Bart Arnold, just three of the folks Mm -hmm. that uh, help uh, bring the show to you every week. And you, too. (laughs) You can join the ranks of John Henderson, Craig Coletta, and Bart Arnold and help keep our show going. Check Check out out (laughs) patreon.com. Or just think about positive thoughts like uh, <laughs> say love or keep, keep it, it up. up. Yeah. All right. Hey, we will talk to you next time on 1980s Now. See ya. Later. <laughs> <laughs>